Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Shout out to Heilig and Trent from our Discord. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, the place where two friends crawl through the anti-canon of cursed books. We read Harassment Architecture by Mike Marr a few episodes ago, a novel which both of us somewhat enjoyed. Listeners seemed to like our choice of literature, and Levi and I are nothing if not easily swayed by public opinion. Therefore, we decided to read Mike Marr's second book, The 2021 Gothic Violence. The Amazon page for purchasing a paperback edition of this book states that Gothic Violence follows a gang of jihadist surfers who use insider trading profit to disable the national power grid and capture Florida amid total panic. Gothic Violence is a fictional dark comedy by author Mike Ma. Though it is a continuation of the first work, this book stands alone. When asked for a comment, the author told us he prefers this book far more and that it is a more brutal and optimistic story. That sounded pretty good to us. Is Gothic Violence an evolution of Mike Ma's craft, a refinement of his thought, or is it just a rehash of harassment architecture, more Bronze Age pervert worship, and little more than a glorified series of blog posts? Listen on. These burning questions will be answered in short order. Accelerate and enjoy. What did you think of this versus harassment architecture? We read harassment architecture fairly recently, so it's quite fresh in our minds. Yeah, we're trying to capitalise on those, uh, like, new right <laughs> downloads. Apparently people like We got quite a lot of... I think it's our most viewed per day or something, or most viewed in the first very, days. Very, very consistently, the things that would appeal to kind of that Curtis Yarvin crowd are the <laughs> ones that do best on our podcast, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it so, was... of course, we're chasing that by reading Mike Ma's second book, Gothic Violence... I thought I was quite hopeful because from at least from some of the reviews I'd read of it, it seemed to be the case that he decided that plot was something to be aimed for in writing books. So I was feeling quite optimistic. However, the plot is pretty threadbare. It's, yeah. it's very, very similar to, to harassment architecture, except there are intimations of a plot Every now and then for the first, I don't know, 80% of the book, then the last fifth, you get a bit more plot, but not, not that much. It doesn't really feel earned. I'm not <laughs> sure whether it's because he, just, he doesn't know how to write plot or whether it's, it's an artistic decision and he just didn't want a plot in the more conventional sense. Either way, I, I think I preferred harassment architecture. Yeah. I think I, uh, I think I might have preferred a harassment architecture as well. However, that being said, it might have just been because we read it first, so it was like newer. It was a newer thing for me to read. Whereas this yeah, was exactly. so this was so similar. This is so similar. It's it's uh, it was it got boring pretty quickly. Essentially, for me, yeah. at least, I found I found I found it really really boring after about. 60 or 70 pages. <laughs> yeah, I However, totally agree. that being said, almost... if I were to I say, mean, hey, it's... should you... It's, it's 170 pages, I think, plus like this weird addendum 100, at the 191, end including that weird bit at the end where he gives you dietary advice. Yeah, <laughs> weird diet advice at the end. Yeah, so if... So I think I preferred harassment architecture. However, if I were... If somebody said, hey, I'm only going to read one of them, which mm. one should I read? 
I'd probably tell them to read Gothic Violence. Gothic Violence. Don't you don't need to read both. You only need to read one, and you'll get the point. <laughs> yeah, because um, Gothic, Gothic Gothic Violence is, is kind of like harassment architecture version one point two or something like that. Yeah, it, yeah. Look, it it's definitely edited, <laughs> which I don't know yes. if harassment architecture was edited, or is this actually edited? Um, like I didn't notice any typos or uh, like sort of basic just grammatical errors that you make when you haven't edited your work. Um, <clears throat> so that's good. So the production quality was better on that front. It feels as though the tidings, the, the writing is more, t is tighter, is more refined. Yeah. So overall it's probably better, a better book. Yeah. It's yeah. just so similar. Yeah, it's so similar. Although it is kind of, in a weird way, it's it's it feel, felt less incendiary. Mm. That might be. Uh, it's hard to say or whether that's just, just like that's a function important. of him becoming more temperate or us acclimatizing. <laughs> uh, and then, and then the other thing was, look, as you said, plot pretty threadbare, but plot still more than harassment architecture. <laughs> yeah, well, there was some plot. How about we, we can probably encapsulate the plot quite quickly and then after that we can just go through and read our read quotes that we yeah, think are, we can talk are about funny or, ideas. or had, illustrative of Mike's math thought because for people who, who don't know what the structure of harassment architecture was, it was effectively, it seemed like a collection of extended edited posts on your favourite message board. <laughs> just these these little thought bubbles that he he collated and published as a book there wasn't much linking any of them there wasn't much plot this one is most of it is the same in that it seems like this long series of of posts by the same user who's better read and writes better than your average chan user or whatever he uses with some interstitial plot to hold it together, but not, not much. Therefore, I think it's probably worth us just saying, okay, well, this is the plot that ties it together, and then we can go through and talk about sections that we thought were funny or interesting or, mm. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th there are definitely sections where it just veers off the plot and it has nothing to do with anything. Uh, but if you, sort of, <laughs> if you take out the the parts that are centered on a plot, it roughly corresponds to, it's a Florida, Florida beach goth, Florida, Florida beach goth gang uh, of vigilantes uh, trying to accelerate the end of America and then start a kind of like new Atlantis <laughs> Amish civilization that is yeah. not overrun with technology. And they like, uh, in order to do that, they secede. Basically, Florida ends up, or some part of Florida, ends up seceding from yeah. the United States. <laughs> and it's his, uh, his, uh, his discussions, diatribes, um, interactions with other people along that along that route, from just uh, beating people up on a beach to actually seceding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that a decent? So he's got this. Anything else to add? Yeah, basically, there's, he's got this gang that. Start out by just being nuisances, really, but beating people up on the beach, yeah, yeah, for like littering and somebody doesn't and disrespecting the pristine environment and things. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? He's, they, kind of a, he's kind of like a violent environmentalist gang. <laughs> yeah, 
to keep the beaches clean. And things slowly escalate. Yes, they build these machines called druids. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. make this this awful noise that makes people physically ill and things like that. And initially they use these to again be be nuisances. Before at the end of the book use them to guard the coastline of what was Florida, what is this new Atlantis now, as well as the border with with Georgia. <laughs> they yeah. What else do they do? They make money by insider trading. Oh, yeah. oh, a very that, weird definition of insider trade. They're like trying to cause mm. a bunch of havoc and then making bets on the effect that the havoc will cause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it starts off as... That, and they say they've... In one part, he says that the organization is using some piece of software, some advanced piece of software that knows how to make the right bets and things like that. So, yeah. Doing uh, some algo trading. A bit of hand wavy, it's fiction yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, it's that's okay. I don't, I don't mind that so much. Yeah, it's fine. Because how, how the money is made is not really that important. Not at all important. Yeah. So that's the, of, uh, that's the vigilante, no good, ne'er good doers. How do you say that? Mm-hmm. Is it ne'er do wells? Yeah, ne'er do wells. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Trade crypto and throw bricks through Walmart stores and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the slow escalation of that. And this, I think this book also had a very, a much stronger theme of women than harassment architecture. So he, 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 yes. spoke, he spoke a lot about women, mostly fairly negatively, but, <laughs> but also talking about love <laughs> and his, yeah, again, like if you've listened to our previous episode, he has a love-hate relationship with women. So he has this strong yearning <laughs> for, for like a wife or a love, and he's constantly talking about this. And then, but then also going off about how women are sluts and all this sort of stuff. So that came up as a big as a big part of. But it's weird because did that really like come through? I don't know if that really ties into the plot though. But whatever. I think it it ties into his broader view of the world. So yeah. he he purports to want a much more traditional life which involves women embracing their femininity and and not taking the what, pill <laughs> yeah yeah exactly not, not taking, taking the pill pills. saving themselves for marriage but once they are married pumping out babies yeah or becoming a concubine to an alpha yeah chad. exactly or a geek yeah. chad um the other look i'm very pro harem very pro harem Yes, so that was a big part. Any anything else, or should we get into the quotes? Let's get into the quotes. We've given the skeleton of the plot. The actual plot is not that much more fleshed out than this. We can talk about the executioner passing. But yeah, the the small details of the plot I think will just be fleshed out as we Oh, we go might... through our notes and talk about the funny bits. I wanted to uh, start with the end though, because I the, the very last paragraph again, like mm, I did on yeah, the yeah, you can read, you I can think read was, that one. Uh, is kind of like a good, like he kind of he he um he bookends it very nicely. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'll read the first uh the the last paragraph and like a sentence from the opening, and I think that should give you an idea of how you tie these two things together. Um. So the last paragraph, quote, there is nothing left in this drooling cunt of a world, 
but to be someone of importance. You have to accept that your death starts at birth if you choose to be what the common man has asked of you. All that we have is our seed, the women who can make sons of it, and the land on which we raise them. Everything outside of this is a contingency, tilting and laced with fever dreams, choking like a dog in the heat. God asks of men to be men and nothing more. We are promised nothing because there is no struggle within the confines of a promise. Our enemies exist to be slaughtered. Our families exist to be loved. I will be important when heaven takes me, or I will stare into the eyes of God and kill myself for the deepest seat in hell. In neither end will I be average. And then he starts the book, a full-scale societal collapse doesn't happen on its own. <laughs> yeah. I think of it as BAPCOR in my mind. This yeah, type this is a whole genre. Bronze Age BAPCOR. BAPCOR. This, this is just classic BAPCOR. Yeah, BAPCOR. <laughs> Loves that shit. Um, so, yeah, we're going to get from uh, here to there in 190 pages of uh, yep. semi-stream of consciousness, weird alt-right conservatism <laughs> and yeah, uh, tra- tra- traditionalist views. Yeah, I don't know if it's conservative. <laughs> it's some weird, weird traditionalist stuff. Um, okay. And so a big theme of his book, and he opens this up in the first chapter, is like authentic. And I think this was in the previous book as well, though perhaps not as strongly or explicitly communicated, um, is the idea of authenticity. Uh, so he says mm. to usher in the return of authenticity and to reanimate the carcass that is our realm. Um, so he's saying like, I don't have the full quote. I should have written down the full quote. So the purpose of this book, I suppose, is mm. to usher in the return of authenticity and to reanimate the carcass that is our realm. Yeah. And of the return of authenticity, he says, this is the foundation of everything good. Mm. Like with Bronze Age, Mindset, though, I have a hard time squaring his calls for the need for authenticity to return with that sneering irony that just pervades everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What counts as authentic? I suppose if you say that sneering irony is an authentic component of your personality, you could swing it that way. (laughs) So the book, the book starts basically, I think he wakes up and there's some woman in his room called Lucretia or something like that. And she's telling him about how he needs to help society collapse and gives him plane tickets. Oh, yeah, the tarot card reading, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's reading from tarot cards. Yeah, so he's kind of... That so lady never comes up again. Oh, it's so. like, it's a loud, loud motorbike. Um, and he makes his way down to Florida by way of LA. Then I guess the next the next important part is where he's at this party, which is full of celebrities, and he's just he's casually going between celebrities and talking to all of them, making strange comments, you're asking some of them if they want to drink blood with him, and things like that. Yeah. And making making rude comments about Hollywood types. Yeah, there's this quote. Likes him. (laughs) There's this quote I wrote down. The Hollywood class of America is more racially homogenous than any white nationalist group. Both have a mix of people who are closely related or undercover intelligence assets. (laughs) And I guess the the thing of note that happens in this chapter is he meets the executioner, who's this 
really, really tall, muscly guy with a big axe. And face paint, who, like skull. Yeah, who's, he's, he's in corpse paint, I think. The, the front cover. So maybe, maybe he's been listening to Varg. Maybe he heard our Varg episode he and decided to give Burzum a try. <laughs> and he, he tells Mike Ma, it's quite cryptic, about how he was dead and buried but has been woken up again to help usher in the end of this world. And, and he puts on a blindfold and says, I'll take it off when, when the, the work is done. He says to Mike Ma at this party in Los Angeles, This morning I rose from a grave of three chains deep. It was dug long before your world was the merest sketch in the architect's mind. Your sun is duller, your clouds thinner, and your soil lacks the blood to make it full. Make once more the world replete with a good violence, his voice almost too deep to understand. I will. I care not to look until it is done. I've seen too much in my life. And at that point, the executioner, I think he tears a bit of cloth from his shawl or whatever he's wearing and blindfolds himself with it. At the end of the book, once, um, once Florida has been converted into New Atlantis, the executioner returns, takes off the blindfold, and then crawls into a grave which buries itself. Yeah. So that's a, that, that's a that- sort of character arc, I guess. Yeah, now is that taken? This is obviously a work of fiction, but uh, is that taken as a hallucination sequence? Like, you know, um, Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse Five, mm. though he has those like hallucinatory sequences. Is it kind of like that? Like, this guy is, has hallucinatory experiences, or like Fight Club or something? I guess. Or are we to interpret the uh, the the executioner as an actual character? Is just a uh, supernatural character? I I'm going to choose I don't to know. That is in Slaughterhouse <laughs> Five, I think all of the things he talked about were, at least from the subjectivity of the main character, supposed to real. be real. Like he, he, the Trophimadorians were real. I will interpret it in the same vein. I will say, from the character's yeah. point of view, the, the executioner is a real character. Yeah, real, real I I interpreted it as more or less real. I do quite like the the strangeness of the world he creates, how it's mostly the same as the world which we inhabit, but every now and then something really surreal will pop up and no one really responds to it as yeah, if yeah. it's anything unusual. So I quite yeah. like that. Yeah, it's almost like a absurdism. I also got... I don't know where I got this from. Maybe it was once he started talking about Hyperboreans, but I also got a kind of like a Lovecraftian <laughs> vibe at times. But an at, the, at the Mountains of Madness vibe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, I love that. It's like one of my favourite short stories. The, the chapter following the, the chapter where he's in LA and hobnobbing with all of these celebrities and complaining about their racial homogeneity and talking to the executioner, the next chapter is called Dracula Wore His Cape to Nightmare Beach Again. This, this is set in Florida, and this is really where you see him starting to be a public nuisance, where you see <laughs> Mike Mars violent... Um, I guess you'd call it vigilante. I, I don't know eco eco violence or eco vigilanteism. Yeah, where you see that beginning to come through. Reports of beach gang violence reaching all time high. <laughs> yeah, he and his mates are sitting in some cafe or a restaurant or something, and they see coming on the TV on the news this report on their doings. 
So the news segment says, Beachgoers are appalled by what has become an all-out war for the coast of Nightmare. A few seconds of silence from the news lady, then a cut to a bloodshot, blonde-haired teenager. He's still in his wetsuit, fresh out of the water. Too many fucking lawyers and desk jockeys coming out here for a post-work session need to stop. Stay the fuck out or get chased the fuck out. Back to the newscaster. Just last week, we spoke to two paralegals who had left the beach with broken noses. <laughs> he then, he's then got this bit where it's this guy called Dillard who's, he's some politician who's being interviewed on the news and he's complaining about these, these beach vigilantes. Ah, uh, that's it. Dillard Reeves is the chairman of the Nightmare Board of Directors. So Dillard has, a, has something to say about Mike Meyer and the gang. As an aside, the main character is never named. I just call him Mike Meyer, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not actually his name. Anyway, Dillard, Dillard goes on to tell this, um, this news reporter, it's a group of about 20 or more frequents, mostly surfers, all convinced that the waves belong to them. Constantly driving and skating around, blaring loud music, calling people names, calling problem, causing problems. Girls too. The only upside is that they keep the beach clean, but even that can't be done without violence. A friend of mine, a great realtor, accidentally left a glass beer behind and these kids followed him to his car. They knocked him down, kicked him senseless, told his wife to clean him and the trash up. One of them threatened to rape her. Who does that? So... <laughs> They're all, they're all really pleased, Mike and the boys, sitting watching this, this news segment on TV, that they're getting noticed. And this is the beginning. I guess this can be tied back to the accelerationist theme of harassment architecture, where anything you do to accelerate or hasten the demise of this iteration of the world is a good thing. And that includes being a nuisance on, on Nightmare Beach. <laughs> yes uh he he then goes on to say oh well i guess this is the interesting thing about the like the pro progress of the book is that it starts out with minor crimes or even things that they intentionally design like uh, activities that they intentionally design to not technically be illegal um and then it just gets more and more violent <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's throughout the book <laughs> until they're frying the I kennedy space way, like, with it, some laser the previous one like mapped the mapped to the guy's like increasingly unstable mental uh state and his like sleeplessness um this one mm -hmm. is mapping not so much to loss of like uh like to a psychosis or something but more to just almost like radicalization mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. He does say, closing this chapter out, piece by piece, we could take the peninsula back. It isn't just a dream, but a very real possibility. We peel out towards home base. So that's, it's a statement of intent, and that is what happens. They do take, they take Florida by and the uh, end of the book. They have one, and this is where it got, I, I, my ears perked up when he said, uh, somewhere, somewhere in this chapter, uh, he said, uh, the coast belongs to the Atlantean race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, hmm, I wonder where this is going. And uh, a go little, into evil territory. A, yeah, well, a little, a little, um, 
spoiler for later in the book, he definitely goes on a bit of a rant about Hyperborea. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. With the Hyperborean rant, I thought, yeah, I've heard this before. Although he's not, he's not a straight-up Evola fan because his views of men and women are distinctly un-Evolian. Distin- yeah, distinctly modern, I'd say. Yeah, m- m- if you stands. take modernity to be not not Evola, <laughs> because it's 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 the female nature which is unchanging, and the male nature which is infinitely changeable. Which, as we know from having read Revolt Against the Modern World, is the inverse of what in reality in the world of being is truly the case. Anyway, when we get to that section, Mike I'm Mark's sure got we will wise crossed. We will, <laughs> yeah, we'll. We'll discuss the true shape of the, the immaterial world and how Mike Marr gets it wrong. The next chapter called He's Stealing Home, he's got this bit where he's, he's just detailing what people do to destabilise the world, or maybe it's not even with the explicit intention of destabilisation, but he just details these strange crimes that groups of people are committing. It's unclear if these people are affiliated with Mike Marr's New Atlantis group. He doesn't actually name it, but the New Atlantis group, the Mike Ma boys, the Mike Ma vigilantes, whatever it's called. The Beach Goths. The Beach Goths. Who he says, are, they're the founding fathers of New Atlantis. <laughs> he says, I keep hearing about these guys who show up to popular bars in the 1977 Oakland Athletic home uniform and heavy duty catcher's helmets. I hear them storm in too quickly to register land a series of punches on everyone inside, and leave before the police are ever called. It's three to five minutes of torrential haymaker downpour, enhanced by the use of hard knuckle gloves. I hear their helmets shatter the hands of whoever fights back. <laughs> the aftermath is piles of unconscious drunks, bartenders too battled to dial for help, women cowering beneath layers of splintered furniture, unisex groans over, the, over top of another journey song. I keep hearing about a couple of men who run down the Vegas Strip in motorcycle helmets, starting fights, stealing wallets, and shoving drunks into trash cans and fountains. I keep hearing about a pack of heroes that tar and feather lone wolf police officers. (laughs) They blind them, take their body armour and duty belts, and then grab a couple of buckets. Sometimes they'll take the whole uniform and save it for a later adventure. So, the... This, this illustrates a few things about this book. One is this surreal violence. Because most of the book takes place in a world that is identifiably our own or quite close to ours. But then you have these, these really surreal episodes like people dressing up in the, the 1977 Oakland Athletics home uniform and splintering furniture with their fists and things like that and beating people up or people tarring and feathering police officers. Mm-hmm. I wonder as well if, as that you've got his no. his deep admiration for violence. Yeah, I wonder, I was wondering this as I was coming up to the end of the book more was how sincere do you think he is about this this belief these accelerationist beliefs or is it, is it is it a bit of a like it seems like a bit of a like a bit of a teenage boy fantasy and uh, it it does feel very pubescent. Yeah, and the guy actually, so he's born in 95, according to the mm. thing at the end of the book. So he's only a 
a little bit younger than us, is this this genre of accelerationism and the genre and the audience are like like they they really just like fantasizing about things going wrong it's almost it's kind of like preppers you know like preppers he probably is a prepper but it's almost like yeah how preppers get off on thinking about the end of the world except they're not necessarily causing the end of the world they're just preparing for it and these guys are kind of like the people who are getting off on causing the end of the world (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) they're trying to get us there trying to get us there um yeah yeah i don't know it's very strange Strange, strange view on the world. <laughs> yeah, it feels very teenage boy. It feels very much like an adolescent power fantasy, which I think I have, I have less time for it now because with harassment architecture, it was something at least somewhat novel. Yeah. Somewhat new. Whereas this book is so similar to harassment architecture that I found I was just getting a bit bored. And what do you know? Uh, I suppose I can quickly look it up, but uh, the time harassment architecture, uh, the the difference in the publication dates. So two thousand nineteen, whereas Gothic violence was published in two thousand twenty one. So it's a two year difference. How much does an author's uh, subject matter change? Like you can just keep on pumping out the same stuff again and again if you mm. want, right? So. Yeah, I would say he in the two year, the intervening two years, he's um, he's writing his technic the technicalities of his writing improved, but he didn't really expand his repertoire of um, concepts at all. No, and I think it's natural for authors to have certain topics that they're preoccupied with. Say Kafka yeah. just wrote about effectively the same thing in <laughs> all of his novels. Yeah, yeah, but he explored different aspects of say powerlessness before bureaucracy or powerless powerlessness before an unknown unknowable power a richness diversity to his exploration of that same concept yeah whereas this really feels like mike ma covering his own songs yeah (laughs) if you'll if you'll accept that analogy (laughs) so mike ma as we've mentioned a number of times he oscillates quite severely between really liking women mm. and really disliking women. Um, he says, a refinement... Hey, okay, should we be attributing this to Mike Ma? I'm going to attribute it to I Mike just, Ma. This is... Whenever we say Mike Ma as quote, it's an asterisk, fictional Mike Ma, not Mike Ma. I'm going to say mm. not Mike Ma. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. Mike Ma thinks. <laughs> or pseudo Mike Ma or something. Um, refinement is mostly absent in today's Western wom- women. They realized mm-hmm. very quickly that the national stage forgives the majority of their faults, ranging from a drunken night out to the murder of a child, unborn or not. This is something you should commit to memory. Yeah, I've got, I've got that, that exact quote here. <laughs> so he... Okay, so broad... <laughs> correct me if you think I'm wrong. Broadly speaking, good women are like... No premarital sex. I assume, from his point of view, white. Although, may so he's racist. It was he's a segregationist, at least. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if so. Maybe with regards to like Hispanic men, he he might think it's good to have Hispanic women and black men should be with black women and white men. 
so I'm kind of just inferring that he likes women. But I think it's fair, fair inference. <laughs> uh, traditional values, traditional quote unquote, according to like his ideas of tradition. He really likes the Amish. Um, so take that for what you will. Uh, he does not like pr- promiscuous women. I think he no. prob- he probably thinks most women probably have too many opinions. <laughs> I I don't think he. Th- Maybe I'm reading between the lines here, but probably doesn't like women like uh, having careers. Maybe he doesn't say that explicitly. He's more hung up on like promiscuity, I think. I think so. This is a work of fiction. He doesn't. It's not a manifesto. Yes, but. Yeah, so so it's not he 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 in no place will say okay these are my views of women, but you can certainly infer that really a woman's role is for reproduction, it's to propagate the best yeah. genes and preferably to have there. a son. Yeah, really. Yeah, like, to make sons. I mean, the last the last paragraph literally says that. So just to have son, son. So to bear to bear children for strong alpha mm-hmm. chads. Basically, yeah. I tried to explain this on, to my girlfriend, the... and she um she got upset with me. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, did you tell your second or third girlfriend then? Let uh, her I don't. Off. I don't need. I don't need to tell them. Oh, <laughs> they know. <laughs> yeah, his his view of women does seem to be that. They are. They can be extremely pure and good if mm. they say, "Don't have sex before marriage. Only ever love one man. Don't take the pill. Don't take drugs. Don't drink. Don't consume popular culture, etc." Yeah. However, they are quite easily damaged, and once they are damaged, they turn into these beings that that not Mike Ma really, really resents. Like banshees. <laughs> it's just banshees. They love dangerous men. I've got a quote here. About um, <laughs> about fallen women's preference in men. Speaking of actors, Four Ted Bundy <laughs> and all of those other serial killers were CIA operations to tarnish tarnish the image of clean cut white men and further <laughs> damage the psyche of women. What the desk jo- jockeys and government officers didn't know is that women, being psychotic by default, prefer dangerous men, even if it costs them their lives. To them. Dangerous men provide a possible foundation of attention and at the very least a good time. <laughs> so, Jack, as a clean-cut white man, do you feel as though your eth- ethno-gender uh, identity has been negatively impacted by the likes of Ted Bundy and other serial killers? Ted Bundy set my people back 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you see, this is the effect he, he was of the mainstream CIA, media. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Manson as well made you all look like a bunch of kooks. Yeah, exactly. This is the, this is the effect that mainstream media is having on one of the <laughs> most marginalized groups in all of Western civilization. Jack the here, can't, white man. Jack can't. Jack heterosexual, clean cut, highly educated <laughs> white man can't catch a break. <laughs> 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 you just you don't know what it's like. <laughs> you don't know what it's like. 
<laughs> no one knows what it's like to be Jack. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jack. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, he. Um. Well, Mike Meyer is a clean cut, uh, presumably heterosexual white male. But as I said on my on uh, in the Sega games, I reckon Mike Meyer likes to get pegged. So I don't know if he's straight. But that's just you've that's you've just this accusation against <laughs> Yuri Bone Smasher. Indigenous Swiss and now Mike Mark. <laughs> I'm just very suspicious. Look, I can pick a man who likes to get fucked in the ass from a mile away. <laughs> I don't, can't say I've ever developed that faculty. That's, that's, that's not a sense that I've developed. So, what about <laughs> any more quotes yeah, on that? women? There's a lot of quotes on women. I didn't there write a lot of quotes on women. I didn't how, about, how about we write them all women, down? Though. Then we can. Then we can move on to the, to something else. He's got this bit about how Western women spend all of their time in pharmacies, or it's in a <laughs> pharmacy that almost their their worst instincts are brought out. In the chapter Carnal Flower in the Lower Dimensions, he says, Western women have grown emotionally attached to the branding of their country's pharmacies. This is because it's where they pick up birth control and other forms of mis- and other tools of mischief. They always need contact solution, and it's always at the worst possible time. They always want acetaminophen. They always want popcorn and chocolate milk. He, um, <laughs> oh. he feels very strongly about the pill, doesn't he? Yeah, he. Uh, I think that must have been a devastating blow to to his worldview. Like uh, it's the idea that yeah, you can stop, you can kill a baby before it's even before conscious, before um, conception. I'm, I'm yeah, sure he, he was probably about, he he's probably pretty a few times too. He's probably pretty happy with the recent Supreme Court ruling. The Supreme Court, yeah. I don't know how the what about there's that works. chapter where I, he I dreams. He dreams. I think that he's a baby, like an, an eight month fetus. Yeah, why don't you read that and then I, and then I'll read my quote. Yeah. No, read read your quote because I can't. Um, yeah, I'll look so for this the is, quote. I was just talking about my memory of that section. You give your quote, and I'll. Um, this is from. I'll find the quote is, about Mike Ma being an eight-month fetus. Okay, this is from later in the book, from a chapter called "Raw Milk at Spellbinders Surf Shop." Maybe it's a little bit of a longer quote. Sure, will I read the entire thing? Let me see. Uh, yeah, we'll see how we go. Quote: Part of me does believe that God assigns man with a woman who will never leave his side and love him until death. The other part of me believes that some men have a duty to form harems and churn out hundreds of sons. Perhaps you have a main wife and the other women are just residents of the farm for the purpose of procreation, concubines, unimportant mistresses. You should never blindly accept that a woman is just your one and only. Don't get me wrong. It is entirely possible because love is real, but you should examine it thoroughly. There are criteria that reveal women who are suited for marriage. It's hard to go wrong with a young, <laughs> with a young homeschooled virgin raised by two parents, no debt, no tattoos, waiting for marriage to leave home, no strange hair dye, no strange clothes, no racy photos or online presence. Reject the bullshit opinions you'll hear when you say you prefer these things. Reject the excuses you'll hear from the women about why they have those tattoos, why they had sex before marriage, why they taught, why they thought it was a good idea to move out and go to college, except no substitute for the real thing, a woman of actual value. Avoid whores like the plague, a phrase I will use even though viruses are not contagious, but the, which I don't understand, uh, but the self-generated cleansing 
solution to a weak body. If this all sounds hateful to you, you're due for a natural awakening. <laughs> Is it hateful or does he just have standards, mate? <laughs> It's just, it's just a man with standards. I want both. You could say he has standards which are predicated upon hating people. <laughs> but so nice, uneducated. None of this college bullshit. Especially no liberal arts, fucking horseshit, gender studies, education. None of that. No moving out. Homeschooled virgin. That's what we want. No premarital sex. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you know, other women can join your harem on the farm, as he said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, did you find the fetus quote? <laughs> no, I can't find it, but he does have this section where he he imagines that he's an eight-month-old fetus and his his mother is going to have an abortion and he learns of this, so he sharpens his teeth, finger and toenails and in the abortion clinic claws his way out of his mother's body and starts attacking the doctors and things like that. <laughs> See, sometimes he has these, like, that's pretty fucking crazy, <laughs> but that, it's yep. also quite creative. <laughs> yeah. So he has these moments of like really zany creativity, uh, which uh, I think it's almost like these uh, diamonds. He's got a lot of potential here, I think to be an actually like, uh, like to go beyond what he's got. Maybe these are just his first two books, right? And mm. he, he will eventually come out with like a book that really like gets him some attention. I just don't know if he'll ever graduate to like a non weird, like a non niche audience if he keeps up. <laughs> yeah, well, maintaining a niche audience is fine. I just hope he writes a second book rather than two books which are more or less the same. Yeah, this was Harassment Architecture um, Part 2. Yeah. <laughs> Gothic violence. So, um, on the yeah, topic of women, more, what more I was women, saying before about <laughs> how, how he mixed up, how he, he disagrees with Evola. He says, time is a flat circle for women and this can be a good thing, but the case isn't so for men. As men... We receive the genetic foundations of our fathers and can take a number of paths forwards or backwards. This is the poetic founda- this is the poetic nature of relations between the two sexes. Women are a constant, either pure or not, <laughs> and men are the ever-changing and adventurous nomads. Yeah, you see you, you can got just it feel the wrong way around there, man. Julius Evola turning over in his grave at the suggestion that or men at least are Julius Evola's wives the turning over unchanging center. <laughs> the axis around which the, the changeable feminine nature rotates. Maybe these ideas are too easily varied to be particularly useful <laughs> for understanding the world. But I digress. We are. Do we have any more interesting quotes about women? I feel like oh, every got... every there's just so many bits about women. Yeah. That like we could just sit here and do like. Heaps and heaps. Do you have any more like good ones though? <laughs> There's this one where he's I've got talking one about other one. how being basic, basically being good in bed is a really bad sign, particularly for women, because it just means that you've slept with a, a bunch of people. He says in the chapter, and the pounding gate of a woman in heat, 
What is sexual talent but gross evidence of an expansive sexual history? What is the act itself without love as the foundation or procreation as the goal? Beware of the woman who knows too much, impresses too easily. This is after he's got this bit where he's describing how you can tell which women have had a lot of sexual partners because they tend to stomp. They're not yeah. graceful in their not gait. Graceful. They're <laughs> smashing, smashing the... You can hear them from underneath, from the Stomping around. Stomping around on heat. Uh, he had another one. Uh, I'm pretty sure you did not read this one. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, he talks about, okay, this is more, this is more not Mike Meyer on women. It's happening all over. The, cl- the collision of worlds and changing of systems. The Apollonian male giving precious time to the infinite breadline of the barren art school whores, to the swarms of voluptuous, though average brown women. On the female side, we see the daughters of Venus who cast their beauty into the void of the uh, racination. Long-preserved Aryan features tossed into the faceless cappuccino sea. The fathers of our time weep as yet another strange match is made by strange circumstances. So that was a nice mixture of both misogyny and racism because he, he, really, yeah. he really dislikes mixed race people. <laughs> he is not a fan of race. Mixing. He does not like race mixing. Now he also doesn't like black people. Does he ever really say anything about Hispanic people? I can only assume he doesn't like Hispanic people. Then again, he's in Florida, which I hear haven't made Florida. Hear that like a lot of there's a lot of Hispanic people there, but notwithstanding the demographics of Florida, <laughs> Florida, I doubt he likes Hispanic people very much. Uh, what we can say for sure is regardless of the particular hierarchy, hierarchical relationships between the races, they should not be mixing. <laughs> not good. <laughs> and especially not at college. Yeah, that was, I remember the section you read that quote from. It's where he's talking about how, how, how there's a boundary between good looking people and people who aren't good looking and how good looking people say, shouldn't like, go strong. and have sex with people who are bad looking. Yeah, exactly. The, the bone smashed shouldn't be going and trying to pick up the unbone smashed or competing with the unbone smashed. <laughs> because, <laughs> because so it, it means that the, the ugly people, the unbone smashed, won't be able to have sex with many people. <laughs> it also means that I think the offspring will be less good looking than if a good looking person and another good looking person had kids it also inflates the ego of of women who aren't good looking when they have sex with a good looking man oh because yeah they that feel like <laughs> they're worth it and they deserve yeah, yeah. it and so he he vows that despite oh. the fact that he is such a handsome man and he could have sex with lots and lots of women who aren't good looking he's not going to He's not going to so, dilute um, the quality of his seed and sexual energy. Such is the nobility of Mike Ma. Uh, no, noble, noble Mike Ma. <laughs> really doing it for the I benefit found, of all um, of humanity. I found a quote on the pill. As we've mentioned oh, quite a dude. few times. He, he, <laughs> sorry, sorry. He does not like the oral contraceptive pill. <laughs> At all. In, a, in the chapter called Medical Black Magic and the Fading Female Soul, which gives you a pretty good idea of what I'm about to read. <laughs> With a woman who is not on birth control, specifically one who has never taken it, you are graced by a complete and maternal being. 
you are surrounded by a feminine and loving presence. When she touches you, it feels soothing. When she runs her hand through your hair, you are reassured. She has a flowing electricity in her, and it reminds you that she's alive. She will radiate an energy that asks to be a mother, so obviously that she may never need to say it. It has developed for so many years to do exactly that. The touch of a woman without birth control is gentle and sincere. You feel a care that will soon be given to the children of yours she makes. And when she does, at the end of it all, she still has enough for you. This is the kindest I could ever be to a woman. This admission of their true potential, the source of what makes them so important. All of my sexism, as dark as it sometimes gets, rests on a stable foundation of loving and understanding women. I feel like that's an encapsulation, really, of Mike Ma's view of women. They are perfected in motherhood. They are there for breeding with one man. And when they are pure, when they are fulfilling that function, that's when he likes them. That's when he loves them. And remember, this is predicated upon his stable foundation of loving and understanding women. I just, I think it's a, um, it's like that PUA describing stuff. things as red flags is so fucking overused, but it does set off a few alarm bells about what sort of person you might be dealing with when they announce to you that they love and understand women. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. When do, someone do I says that, anybody... I think I know what you're about to say to me. (laughs) You think you're being unique and individual, but you are going to say the same thing that I've heard from every other person who has, in so many words, told me that they love and understand women. Do you reckon he likes um, practical... Do you reckon he might have read Practical Female Psychology or related adjacent books? A man this devilishly handsome doesn't need Practical Female Psychology. Yeah, it's true. That's true. He's... He's like a purebred, purebred handsomeness. Doesn't need not it. Mike Marr on a few occasions tell you tells you that he's quite handsome, him like a magnet, magnet, pussy, pussy magnet. One might say. <laughs> I yeah yeah I I don't know. Like at some point, it just becomes like this. It, I would say if he if he writes another book. We're, we're probably going to be able to tell what it's like within like two pages. Is it just going to be the same rehashing of his existing perspectives on everything, including like women? Yeah, unless, unless, unless I'm really... quite sure that it's going to be fairly different to these two books, I probably wouldn't bother. No, no. Whereas uh, after reading Harassment Architecture, I said oh, I'd probably read Gothic Violence, which, which we did. But that was because you... I thought Here actually, we are. That this would be a different book. <laughs> but... No. um. He he got us. He got I, us. Yeah, he fucking got us. Fucking bullshit, man. Uh, no, I legitimately was like uh, over it by like page fifty or sixty. <laughs> I was like, this is this sucks because um, as we, I think we mentioned on our um, as Jack said at the end of our practical female psychology episode, there is no sin higher. There's nothing that will land you in the a deeper circle of hell at the book club. From hell. You thought Dante's Ninth Circle of Hell was full of, of traitors? It's not full of traitors. It is full of boring fucking writers. Boring people. <laughs> boring people like exactly. three stooges who wrote Practical Female Psychology. And fucking Mike Ma has committed the cardinal sin 
on this podcast, which has been fucking he boring. He let us down. I I would much prefer to read some something that is repulsively hateful but entertaining than something which is far more temperate but is boring. So he's been hateful and incendiary and uh, misogynistic and racist, all the stuff that might be interesting except the fact that it was a rehash of his first book, so it was fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. now he now he's just a cunt and he's boring. <laughs> so and and uh and I think he also gets a mark next to his name for betraying us because I feel like we're being betrayed. <laughs> this this is both boring and betrayal. <laughs> yeah, well I, well the the boredom is the betrayal, really. <laughs> this is a mechanism I thought he, of I thought he had our back. <laughs> you're sorry, mate. You're you're in a deep, deep circle of hell, Mike Ma. Now, uh, the only the only get points for like the fetus scene, <laughs> and, uh, and, I like the, and I like the and I like the executioner. I like the executioner as well. <laughs> the book's not without merit. It's just that it's it's so similar to the previous book that he wrote, which we've recently read. Okay, so Jack, what would you say if I if I'd never read any Mike Mart before? I can just ask, "Hey, Jack, which one should I read of these two? We read Gothic Violence because it's yeah, it's the same thing <clears throat> or extremely similar to Harassment Architecture, but it's better executed. Yeah. So should we move on from women? Yeah, let's move on from women. If we if we find something else about women, which we probably will, we can we can throw it in. Uh, he had a he had a poem. Uh, this doesn't connect to anything, but I want to read it because it was kind of interesting. This might just be a non sequitur. It's called it's called. Uh, should I read the whole thing? It's like a page in a bit, but yeah, I, th- I think it should be fine. Yeah, um, it's it's in a section called a uh, chapter titled Danny Kay's Civilization. Uh, it, I remember this. Yeah, and it goes like this. Uh, each morning, a missionary advertises noon signs. He tells the native population that civilization is fine. And three educated savages holler from a bamboo tree that civilization is a thing for me to see. So bongo, 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 I don't want to leave the Congo. Oh, no, 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 no. Bingo, bangle, bungle. I'm so happy in the jungle, I refuse to go. Don't want no bright lights, false teeth, doorbells, landlords. I make it clear that no matter how they coax him, I'll stay right here. I look through a magazine the missionary's wife concealed. Magazine? What happens? I see how people who are civilised bung you with automobile. You know you can get hurt that way, Daniel. At the movies, they have got to pay many coconuts to see. What do they see, darling? Uncivilised pictures that the newsreel takes of me. So bongo, bongo, bongo. He don't want to leave the Congo. Oh, no, 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 no. Bingo, bangle, bungle. He's so happy in the jungle, he, he refuses to go. Don't want no penthouse, bathtub, streetcars, taxis, noise in my ear. So no matter how they coax him, I'll stay right here. They hurry like savages to get aboard an iron train. And though it's smoky and it's crowded, they're too civilised to complain. When they've got two weeks vacation, they hurry to the vacation ground. What do they do, darling? They swim and they fish, but that's what I do all year round. So bongo, bongo, bongo. I don't want to leave the Congo. Oh, no, 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 no. Bingo, bangle, bungle. I'm so happy in the jungle. I refuse to go. Don't want no jailhouse, shotgun, fish hooks, golf clubs. I got my spears. So no matter how they coax him, I'll stay right here. They have things like the atom bomb, 
so I think I'll stay where I am. Civilization, I'll stay right here. I don't need civ- so the poem's finished. I don't need I don't feel civilized in cities, do you? Mixed kids breakdancing on a subway car at daybreak, an early birth in the window seat to veil, four people on the phone about square footage, an overdose in the cafe bathroom, police on horses telling me to fuck off and die. I heard you the first time. Who the fuck breakdances at six in the morning? Latte coloured criminals in ill fitting Yankee hats. I got shot and died in the city once. I never went back again. Yep. Yep. There are a lot of directions we could go in from that because there are, <laughs> that has a lot of the themes of, of, of Mike. Okay, I've got, I've got a question for you. Well, more broadly, just BAPCOR. BAPCOR, okay. I, I've got a question for you. Honest. Okay, how, what is legitimate in your perspective, Jack, about their criticisms or reservations about civilization, living, living in a high, highly technological civilization? So he, he, BAP, other BAP core people, Julius Evola, a bunch of people, uh, Unabomber, express these views, disdain for civil rights, for like civilization. Just from what I just read then, was there anything that uh, you sympathize with? So I'll have to be generous, which means I will have to loosely read the, the <laughs> song he gave there. I think there are some legitimate criticisms. So at least for people living in highly technological societies in big cities, there does seem to be a deep distress to living in such an anonymous high population density area with constant noise. Like cars are so loud. We just, we don't realize it anymore because it's omnipresent, that noise of automobiles. Yeah, yeah. The constant bustle... The, the deep alienation that a lot of us have from our labour, that we, we go into work each day, perform a task that if we didn't do it, probably no one would notice, it doesn't matter. We never really see the end product of our labour. It tends to be this huge group effort towards something very, very distant from us or quite removed from our everyday experience. We're extremely sedentary and eat food that makes us sick. So, so much of our healthcare is, is really predicated upon countering the effects of how we live, which makes mm. us feel terrible. Mental health problems are getting worse. Time it doesn't. Everyone seems to be depressed or anxious. So some, something isn't, is going wrong. Does that mean that... Our society is uniquely bad. No, I think every there is no such thing as a perfect society. There are always going to be problems with societies. But he does point out a number of problems that we do have with how we live at the moment. Okay, so two, two follow-up questions from that. Okay, first one is looking forward to the future. And the second one is about like looking back into the past. You said, so is, given that we have these problems... Is accelerationism a worthwhile pro- sort of like loose constellation of ideas, p- proposals for how we can fix some of those? What, what are your thoughts on accelerationism as put forward by people like Bapp and Mike Ma? Well, the thing with accelerationism is they assume that acceleration will go in one direction, that there is, say, you accelerate or you 
accentuate the intrinsic contradictions within our current technological society, leading to its collapse. Once it collapses, you will have you'll have a world much more similar to how they think humans used to live, where you had small bands of people who lived... He seems almost to have this anarchist view. Because in, in yeah. some of the last chapters, he's describing how no one has come up with government because it's just not necessary. People mind their own business and it's all good. Yeah, here we go. So in the separation of beach and state, he says, <laughs> the entire country is finding its groove, functions smoother with each new day. A true form of government is never established because it never becomes necessary. Much like the Amish, people are occupied by meaningful work, sufficient pleasure, nourishing food, loving families, and the presence of God. Nobody is ever bored or lacking in purpose enough to desire an overbearing government, and so life continues as it should. When the occasional dispute breaks out, men settle it by wrestling or boxing. <laughs> so in that, school, that strikes me as quite an, an anarchist view of things, that... Anarcho-utopian. Human, human beings yeah. fundamentally, when you leave them to their own devices, behave well. They've been corrupted by modernity and by technological society. If you get rid of technological society, people will naturally go back to focusing on things like family, friends. They will meaningfully work. Whereas I'm much more, say, of a Burkean in in this sense in that i think that human human beings if you just leave them to their own devices won't just mind their own business and be kind to each other i think you need a government to restrain the the, the worst impulses of human nature you basically need a big man with a big stick to make sure that other people behave themselves and it's a necessary evil <laughs> and so, okay, so there's a very very roundabout way of saying that do I support acceleration no because it's so unpredictable I don't think that you accelerate to make our society collapse and then you get this like anarchist Phoenix surfing paradise that Mike Ma seems to think that you'll get I think you would get Christian utopia. I think you would get quite a rapacious anarchy if there were say the, the collapse of government like that um little what was that little fucking town that went went to shit in uh was it in uh was it in DC or was it in um Portland or something? You know that like they declared an autonomous zone. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, and a bunch of people got murdered. Fucking murdered and then they were they had like warlords and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so inversely going back, I I kind of already know the answer to this, but just for sake of completeness like any society they have a like back to the back to the good old the golden eight days when we lived hyperborea or atlantis was awesome do you think that there is realistically any previous society or societies that we should be more informed by in our in our in our living like how or to what degree or which societies can we or is is it is uh, going forward a purely like first principles thing in your in your thinking? Well, the issue is no person exists without context. You can't just change someone's culture or the society they exist in. Yeah, without reference to their past and expect it to work. People are 
enculturated to behave certain ways and to respond to certain things, positively or negatively, it would really depend on which mm. society someone has grown up in, which societies you would look back to and try to get lessons from. You can't just radically change someone's social environment and expect them to flourish in it. Yeah. So yeah, no, I guess enough. my, my cop-out answer is that is that is so... It's so dependent upon the individual. It's interesting because there's this, I, I think in, in Mike Ma and probably Baps as well, and probably Evola as well, uh, that they're, yeah, as you say, like accelerating towards what? Well, they kind of feel like it's almost like circular history. It's like, well, we accelerate mm. towards the past, <laughs> which is kind of a strange yeah. idea. We accelerate towards the past and the past is better. Therefore, acceleration is a good thing. Um, and they're not explicit enough Unless it, and they just kind of, and then they reference things like Hyperborea, and it's like, okay, well, yeah. Well, I mean, Evola is explicit enough. Evola's, Evola was quite well, Evola systematic lays out the entire so Bronze Age pervert and Mike Ma philosophy aren't. for it in, yeah. in part two of Revolt Against One World, which you can listen to in one of our top episodes. Is <laughs> part two of Revolt Against One World. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to it. <laughs> I guess the thing with. With this circular time thing, how eventually th our technological civilization collapses and we go back to, we, we restart the cycle of having a, a God-fearing, family-loving society. I think every, every stage of society, and this, this sounds so trivially true that it doesn't need stating, except the thing is, so the, the idea of circular time kind of ignores this, is that it's, it's dependent upon what has happened in a society before a given point in time. The reason why it might appear that there is a, a cyclical aspect to it is that there are certain contexts or certain constants of human nature that given a certain set of circumstances, people are much more likely to respond in certain ways. Yeah. Say, so, if the cost or, of living, say so if the cost of housing and the cost of food goes up, people tend to have fewer children. Yeah, that's not because there is some underlying blueprint to human civilization. It's just because, as an individual, you see that you don't have as many resources, and children consume resources, so you're not going to have children. There are certain things that humans will fairly predictably do in response to a fairly common set of circumstances, like say scarcity or conversely abundance, and that might give the impression of a cyclical aspect to civilization but it's not really cyclical it's just that human beings are operating with the same hardware and being yeah. exposed to similar circumstances yeah it's interesting isn't it I, I i think especially once we get deeper and deeper history and what i mean by that is essentially as the resolution and the depth of our sorry i just used that word so the resolution of our view on history you know Say, for example, discovery of uh, more archaeological artifacts or older, older megalithic structures um, or deciphering some ancient text or, or those sorts of things. And then even things like uh, comparing languages and the history of languages and how they developed and then things like our DNA. Like we're getting more and more history as a kind of as a substrate. <laughs> if you can think of history as a substrate, I don't know if that's too abstract way to put it. Um, and... So not the past, I'm talking about like history as a field. Um, and if it's, if it's long enough, if we have enough of this thing, 
we have enough sampling, then give assuming that uh, the human condition has a, 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 a finite set or finite repertoire of sort of like behaviors and reactions in terms of like building blocks, like base behaviors, like, you know, lust for power, um, responding to scarcity with like fight or flight stuff. So not being a determinist about it, but saying that, you know, there is something that it is to be human. Then with mm-hmm. enough sampling over history, you will get repetitions of these behaviors and proclivities. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And that alone should make you suspicious of any claims of um, the cyclical nature of it because then you have to ask like, well, what is the structure of the cycle? And whenever I've seen claims about the structure of these cycles, there's one in the technology industry which is claimed even by people like Mark Andreessen, who's a very like, respected investor um, and entrepreneur, references thesis by this woman named Carlotta Perez who she says there's this there's this 50 year cycles on the relationship between financial capital and technological development but then she just slips in well it's kind of 50 years it was 45 years here it was 60 years there it's kind of like plus or minus whatever fucking variable and then and then she arbitrarily limits it to the 1800s like during the thermodynamic revolution and there's there's all these like parameters which she just kind of like twists and like tweaks as she likes mm-hmm. to get the cycle to fit and then it's like well we actually you know technology didn't start developing in the 1800s like we have like tens of thousands we have at least 10 or fifteen thousand years of human history it drops off but then we definitely have like a couple hundred thousand years of bio sort of biological evidence of like modern humans or whatever so why did you choose to stop in the 1800s and why did you pick those particular instances of uh, case studies to highlight your cycle and how come the error bars on each point in the cycle is so like this is a very like flexible cycle (laughs) Mm. Um, whereas I think it's more like there's there's just sampling errors and or there's sampling over a very over a finite set of uh, behavioral repertoire and it appears as though there's cycles um under a loose enough analysis if you ask yeah i don't want to i don't want to totally dismiss the idea that it depends i guess it depends on how you conceive of a cycle so yeah i'll I'll see if i can if i can describe this subtle difference adequately so there's this person called peter turchin so peter turchin sergey nefedov wrote this really good book called secular cycles which was basically looking at in pre-industrial societies, so this is an important caveat to make, that they were studying pre-industrial societies and the dynamics of those societies do seem to be something So like feudal, feudal Europe or like that sort of thing? Post-industrial societies. Yeah, basically they have this idea that there is a relationship, a very, very low-resolution view, there's this relationship between demographics and the distribution of wealth within a society and social unrest and they they have a number of case studies say Mm. say if the roman empire the roman republic they have some in england they have some in france they have say the romanovs in russia there does seem to be this cyclical nature of societies going through integrative and disintegrative periods of say building wealth and demographic expansion and then wealth accumulation and then demographic collapse and social Mm. unrest. Mm. So the distinction I want to draw between people like, say, Nefedov and Turchin, whose 
whose description of cycles in history I accept, and people like, say, Evola, whose description of cycles in history I don't accept, is that yeah, so what is for Evola, his, how, how he seems to conceive of a cycle in history is that there is this, there's almost this abstract form that exists that history is almost reading from. Mm. There's this... Like a clockwork history, sort of. Yeah, there, yeah. there are these, these cycles that exist and the cycle itself is what is generating history. Whereas for Nefedov and Turchin, what they seem to be saying is, okay, well, we've, we've collected these data and if you look through history, there are the, there's this complex confluence of factors which exists sort of in these feedback loops mm. that produce forms of, say, a society getting wealthier and demographically expanding and then demographically collapsing. It produces these cycles of a few centuries mm. in period. That appearance of a cycle is not because there is this abstract cycle existing in the world of being or something like that, which informs our affairs it's because there are there are factors within human societies that in, interact in with various. each other yeah mm. yeah that lead to these effects interesting and and i'm not sure you, if i expressed myself no no, no correctly, i, I think the problem is sufficiently when you when you talk about cycles or cyclical history a cycle can mean quite different things to the point where you can have say turchin and nefedov Evola and Bronze Age pervert, all notionally talking about cycles of history, even though they're all talking about something that's quite different. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Maybe we should because you've read. I haven't read the Church. I haven't. I've. I bought it, <laughs> but I didn't read it. I haven't. I read love. It yet. I love. You really. Cycles. You really it's like such secular a good cycles, right? Um, would it be worth? Would it fit in on this show? Would we? Should we do it for the show? I don't think it'd fit in with this okay. show, really. Okay, not weird enough, eh? We can do maybe we Not can do some enough. other cycle one like the one that the person suggested by uh whatever, yeah, the uh, oh, Spangler, yeah Spangler. Maybe that's a weirder one. That's cyclical history. All right. Well, that was a a nice uh, change of pace from all the misogyny and racism. But maybe we should get back to gothic good. violence. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say how that about Mr. Mike Ma is. Not a Turchinite. I don't. I don't even know if he he would be an Evolian. He's just. He's just. He just doesn't explain himself at all. He's just says. It's just. I'd, it's just Babcor. It's just Babcor. Babcor. There, are, there are, There's this group of people who write in a fairly similar way to Bronze Age pervert. So there's seem more of them? to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm a lot of, of over Bapcor. I don't. I, I probably don't want to do any more Bapcor for a while. <laughs> any more Bapcor? Yeah. Well, a lot of Bapcor is pretty similar. It gets quite samey. How about <laughs> next topic? He's got. He's got. He's got very strong views on how you dress, and maybe because I've been oh, reading yeah. Burke, yeah, high and fashion. I've got Burke on the mind. Yeah, all right. Let's go. Burke talks a lot about the importance of manners, and how manners and an accepted way of behaving are extremely important in society and in cohesion between people. And so <coughs> I will read Mike Ma extremely loosely in the chapter, A Hand in the Waistcoat, as agreeing with Burke's and, say, <laughs> Roger Scruton's emphasis on the need for manners. He says, 
How you dress is without debate an extension of your being, of things like your physique, soul and attitude. He also says, Life is far too important to wear basketball shorts or sweatpants. Both are a symbol that you've given up. Even when millionaire actors and actresses throw them on to get coffee down the street, it still remains an issue. Nobody cares if you're comfortable because you look like an arsehole. Just wait until every sweatpants manufacturer is dragged into the street and shot. Maybe then you'll reconsider. And to close out this group of quotes, If you don't understand high fashion, it's probably because you're not a barren Jewish lesbian or someone who respects the opinion of one. So clearly, Mike Ma's very interested in how you dress. He's very interested in manners and even an acceptable a, mode of social conduct. Find it? He, he actually outlines uh, his uniform near one of the... Oh, yeah, was it called like Surf Gothic or something like that? Yeah, Surf Gothic. I don't know if I actually wrote it down anywhere. Just remember it, obviously. And look, in pictures that I've found of him online, he often seems to be wearing a a shirt. So he at least, he, he somewhat cares about his appearance. He also talks about, at the end of the book, he's got this section on, say, skincare and stuff like that. So he's quite, he's quite interested in appearance. However, he um, offers some interesting advice for skincare. He talks about urine therapy, <laughs> which was... Um, I'm surprised he doesn't talk about bone smashing. Fucking hell, man. Of all the things, of all the things he said, I think his, um, his advocacy for, for putting wee-wee on your face to make your skin good is probably the most despicable. <laughs> Piss on your face. I'm trying to find the exact quote because... He, it's not, in, it's, it's ambiguous whether he's advocating for urine therapy or for other things. Here we go. On the same note, there are a few more cures and solutions provided by him. He talks about how his mother fixed her teenage acne by washing her face with urine daily. Other topical remedies include the classic clay and raw cider vinegar, clay and mineral water, and raw honey alone. I've personally done all of these and seen some decent results. So from that, it sounds and that like was Mike not Ma. that was not Mike Ma. That was not not Mike Ma. That was just normal Mike Ma at the end of the book. That's that's just normal Mike Ma. So yeah. I think he is talking about how he's he's pissed in his own face to clear up his acne or something. I hope not. I would I would I would lose more respect for him if that were true than if. A lot of the opinions expressed in Gothic Violence by not Mike Ma were reflective of Mike Ma's beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of strange, isn't it? <laughs> I guess you can do whatever you want with your own body. I don't give a fuck. You can piss on your face. I don't care. Good on you. More power to you. <laughs> you can. I, I think you should be allowed to, but I am going to judge you for weighing in your own face. <laughs> I, I don't... I don't want to associate with anybody that I knowingly that I know pisses in their own face. No, it just it just doesn't say good things about a person. Then again, I don't want to alienate my audience. So if you piss in your own face. No, if you piss in your own face, I don't care if if I'm offending you as a member of the audience. (laughs) I'm not okay with that. If we read enough books from enough diverse audience, are we just enough diverse authors on diverse topics, are we just gonna alienate like all our potential viewers you know it's like um, red scare apparently 
like apparently they just piss everybody off. They're just constantly just like making fun of everything. <laughs> um, I uh, yeah. So I I had a quote yeah. Have here you got a Have you got a quote? Talking about audiences, target and target specifically target audiences. Occasionally, Mike Mar knows who his audience is. He knows exactly mm-hmm. who they are, and he had this quote with regards. He's talking about the rise of autism in the United States. Yes, I remember this. This is reverse osmosis, I think. Yeah, reverse osmosis. He says, um, uh, so I'll, I'll, a little bit of a longer quote, but I'll, yeah, sorry, two paragraphs. Yeah, read it. Focus in on the average American male. From adolescence to retirement, we find men who would become violently angry, perhaps to the point of tears, if any one of these vices were taken from them. Games, television, porn, snack foods, mood-altering substances, time spent online, and so on. Are you seeing it yet? Women are much the same in a slightly more female-oriented way. The difference between a diagnosed autistic person and the average fighting age male is a trip to the psychiatrist. One could argue that 90 or more percent of Americans are on the spectrum, granted that you are faithful to the parameters of it. This will be made... Mm. Excuse me. This will all be made more apparent once select autists discover and begin uh, discover and begin high speed detoxification processes cutting out tap water and aluminium from body products declining vaccinations high intensity workouts and saunas these are all things that can kill autism in the short term and the result will be something worth watching some get even more creative gazing into the sun isolating in a deep forest for weeks consuming large amounts of fresh raw coconut creams and molded dark berries personally I cured my autism with breast milk and virgin's blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <pretty> dumb. <laughs> so, being generous, there are some things in there that he points out which are true. So I think before this, he defines autism as something like having a hard time understanding and responding to social cues. And... If society continues to become more and more atomized, say if we spend more and more of our time in curated, individualized online environments, then we probably will have a harder time understanding each other. Similarly, say people playing too many games, eating shit food, watching a lot of porn, probably not so good for you. So he's got those things right I guess if I'm going to be, if I'm if I'm going to generous and not meet him halfway, but meet him ninety five percent of the way there. Yeah. The thing about curing it all by he's he's really not a fan of fluoridated water. <laughs> he's he's not a fan of vaccines either. So I wonder if he's got his COVID jabs. Oh fuck! His no. Bill Gates five G oh, device no, he jabs. <laughs> you know he hasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but the reason why I brought that up is because <laughs> I posted that as a quote to Twitter, <laughs> and one random dude retweeted it. So I retweeted the bit like cutting out tap water and aluminium products, blah blah blah. I cured my autism with breakfast, breast milk and virgin's blood, and then some <laughs> random dude retweeted it, and it was this guy named. Andrew Morris, who, who he says passionate about IT. So his, his Twitter description is passionate about how IT solutions can bring positive values to our businesses and personal lives. 
proud hashtag autism parent, son of a parent with hashtag dementia. And that's when I realized like in Twitter is full of all sorts of random people. And this person's just retweeted my quote from Mike Myers saying that he's cured autism with virgin's blood and breast milk. And this random, like probably perfectly lovely guy who's out there doing autism awareness stuff or whatever. And, and this guy's just blindly re- retweeted my fucking quote. From Mike Myers. <laughs> like, Dude, Andrew, what did you know? Andrew, untweet that shit. <laughs> it's Man, not I what your it. audience wants to see. It's what they need to see, though. He's got, not wanted. He's got 15,000 followers, Jack. I hope that they see this tweet. <laughs> it's an irresponsible tweet. I bet you it's just a bot. He just has like some social media bot that's just looking at hashtag autism uh, tweets and just retweeting <laughs> hashtag autism. <laughs> and he's picked up some Mike Mar quotes. Yeah, I guess similar in a similar vein to that quote, he says in the chapter, feel free to die when you've had enough. Comfort is a casket. It's a funeral where nobody cries and everybody laughs. The people you love will howl late into the night and forget you ever lived. So I suppose that's also, it ties into his sense of, of enemy regarding our culture. That... Technology is increasing our sense of comfort and our sense of comfort is making us degenerate. (laughs) Ah, yes, the degeneracy of society. Curable only through, like, extreme sports events. Run 50Ks and swim 20Ks. And then 120 kilo bench and then drink three litres of raw milk. (laughs) What about this thing about Christianity? Because he talks a, a fair bit about how he he serves God and things like that, but he's got this section where he talks about how he views Christianity, which is, at least in, in Western countries, not the mainstream. <laughs> in the chapter called In the Case of the Death of the Nazarene, he says, I reject the accepted paths of Christianity. I re- reject that it is some all-welcoming cult of pacifism. I reject its lack of enemies, its forgiveness towards the shameless agents of hell. Instinctive Christianity is generous when appropriate and cruel when it needs to be. It does not condemn violence because it knows it is needed to survive. It does not extend a hand to the enemy. It puts an axe through its face. It is offensive as it is defensive. Painfully loud, but monk-like, impressive in its gait and inspiring to those just outside it. It is restrictive only of things that do harm and encourages the adoption of good habits. It does not accept the murder of Jesus Christ. It savagely hunts those responsible. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? He just redefines, he just completely redefines. (laughs) Just says, this is what Christianity really is. That's the benefit of instinctive Christianity because your instinct can make it mean whatever the fuck you want want it to mean. mean. Yeah, 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 it's really weird. It's like, what if I literally showed you quotes from the Bible where Jesus like turn the other cheek, bro? Nah, but the problem the problem with the Bible is (laughs) just written by so many people over such a long period. You can dig up in there basically a quote that'll justify whatever you want to do. Oh yeah, man, you can justify like going to war and stuff with the Bible. There's lots of war shit. It's great. Um, <laughs> but I do, as you mentioned, like just instinctive Christianity. It's just, well, mm-hmm. 
the Holy Spirit flows through me and tells me that uh, yeah. hunting down the people who killed Jesus is a good idea. <laughs> yeah, so I, it depends on how unfair I want to be to Mark Maher, whether I'd interpret that as anti-Semitism, whether he's one of the people who well, says he's that, you know, the, definitely the, anti-Semitic the blood of Jesus is on the hands of the Jews book. forever. Yeah. I mean, I kind of assume that, but I, I don't know if I'm being unkind. Read between to the Mark lines. Probably anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> probably it's probably he probably just can't say. Maybe just flirting with that line. Maybe maybe just reading too much into it. Um, he had a he had a quote which I found funny. Uh, let's see if I can find it on hair metal. <laughs> he was talking about music. Oh, that's Bain, right. Yeah, he he weirdly likes hair metal. I can't stand that stuff. <laughs> hair metal's like Kiss and stuff. Yeah, Def Leppard. Like glam stuff. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Sex Pistols? Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. No, that was just punk. That was just punk, yeah. Um, imagine the hair metal bands of the 80s as a second generation trans am on fire. It's full of naked women and is outrunning the police. A solid decade of non-stop masculine terror until bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam threw nails across the road. Though some of the bands powered through grunge's mudslide, the mood was largely killed. It's also worth noting that most hair metal musicians had zero regard for life or death. They lived their look and sound. People do not tend to forget these things. When a single weak male is popularized, it takes numerous good ones to erase his damage. He's, saying, he's talking about like pretty much since Cobain, I guess, mm. <laughs> and Pearl Jam, the... Uh, would you call it the pussification of the American the male uh, pop singer has been full steam ahead. Now we've got people like the Kid Leroy. <laughs> Fucking Jesus Christ. Have you, have you ever heard any of the Kid Leroy stuff? No. Kid's, the kid's like 19. He might not even be 19. He might be like 16. Like huge, like mm, yeah, probably tens of millions of downloads on Spotify or whatever. Like massive doing songs with Justin Bieber and stuff. And to me, it's just, uh, yeah, I would agree with Mike Moore on this. Just not at all masculine. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just like, how is this kid fucking world famous? But whatever. I'm not, I'm not his intended audience. He's not singing love songs to people like Levi. <laughs> yeah. How much more do you think there is to talk about? About this Almost we can fuck all. He about- does talk about, he questions Abraham Lincoln's existence and then kind of alludes like, did Julius Caesar even exist? So he's kind of like, he got Oh yeah, there's that question of history. Questioning of history. Like history has been constructed and by stuff. the elites. And then he has and this, this is- where he's like, what if you become the leader? Then you get to see into history and see all this shit that this they don't tell you. This is super Bronze Age pervert, this stuff. Yeah. Because I remember Bronze Age pervert talking about how there was something like Beijing and New York are just an hour apart by train, but capital T, they don't want you to work that I, out. I just so. find that's just so fucking batshit insane. It's ridiculous. And with Bronze Age this Perfect, is, yeah, he this was, was being serious. serious. There was this, that reminds me, there's this section called Hitting My Head Against the Firmament where he begins, he has a fist fight with a college professor over the existence of space. So he says... Sunday morning, a fist fight with a college professor over the existence of space. He thinks it's all real, thinks we landed on the moon and all this other nonsense. He charges at me and gets dropped in one hit. It's pretty silly how NASA has been driving toy cars around a movie set with orange 
for 30 years and telling us that it's this grand exploration of the planet Mars. There are thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth, but nobody can see them. Not once have they been photographed by a civilian or by anyone. So strange. Thousands of cell satellites, but when you're closest to them flying in a plane, your phone has zero service. So very strange. So that... And I mention this in connection with his questioning of history, saying that we've had all of these grand civilizations that existed very, very recently, only a few years ago. It's just all evidence of them has been wiped away by the elites. The th- the thing is, like the thing with satellites orbiting Earth, you can actually see them with the naked eye. So yeah, if, if, a, if you if you're blip. in a place without much light pollution, you actually can see them. And the thing about how when you're in a plane and you have no mobile signal, that that calls into question the existence of satellites. It's just I'm not an engineer, but you yeah, but don't get the phone, signal directly from a satellite. That's not that's not towers. how it how it works. Yeah, radio towers. So a, a lot of his questioning of, of history and science is, I think, predicated more upon him just not understanding the technical aspects of them. Although I guess his retort would be, well, you think you understand, but you're just swallowing the lies I, of I think of that them. he just didn't, like, it, I think he's just, I think there's a selective laziness with people like this. So they selectively won't go and look at the thing. Like, it would take, I don't know, it depends obviously how deep you want to go, but maybe less than half an hour to just go and read the Wikipedia page about like 4G technology or whatever. And just like, Mm. or satellites, you know, like communicating with satellites, you need a satellite dish. Like it would take a couple of minutes of like critical thought and maybe like half an hour of reading Wikipedia to realize that that stuck out as a particularly dumb statement to me. That thing about like not being able to connect to the mobile network when you're in a plane <laughs> it just, to me yeah just, yeah it was either incredibly dumb or maybe just ignorant and but more specifically what was worse not not worse but what i found more egregious about that I, people are ignorant like, i'm like obviously we, we i'm sure we've made plenty of mistakes on this fucking on this podcast like make mistakes all the time plenty ignorant about like 99.999999% of everything um but that's like selective laziness, like selective, selective. I'm not going to go and spend a couple of seconds to like double check that is my phone connecting to satellites. <laughs> yeah, he's got the the elites are responsible for a lot. They're responsible for for our current awful lifestyles. They're responsible for fabricating history. They're responsible for lying to us about the existence of space. They're responsible for securing with force the Arctic and Antarctic so that we don't see the eight-foot-tall Hyperboreans with glowing orange eyes wandering around there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're real. He's not even like... He said that they're not even statues. They're actually real people. And uh, when they come back to life or whatever, or thaw out, I don't know, when they emerge from stasis, <laughs> uh, all the archaeologists, just, they just go silent. They get silenced or whatever. <laughs> don't talk yeah, about Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we said you've got the Hyperboreans and they split into two races. One is us. They started agriculture and were dwarfed by it. The other ones remained on the poles of the earth, though. and are still are still hunter gatherers, but they're 
they're huge with glowing orange eyes, but access to the Arctic and the Antarctic is restricted by governments because they don't want you to learn about the existence of the Hyperboreans. I just don't think that's true. I think you can access this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, I mean, again, this is fiction. He could always just say, dude, it's fiction. You're taking it too seriously. Yeah, yeah. Fine, whatever. But I'll just say, if he's actually being sincere, somewhat sincere, then like, you can go to Antarctica. It's really expensive and difficult, but you can go to Antarctica and you can go to the Arctic. Again, it's really difficult and dangerous and stuff, but you can... I don't know if we have much more to say about this book. Of course, there are more quotes we could read. There are more themes of his that we could discuss. The problem is it's all effectively the same as, as that we, which we discussed for the... I do have one more novel episode. question for you, Jack. I have one more novel yeah. question for you that this book has stimulated. And if you have any more questions that have been stimulated, then we can discuss those. But this, this is the last one that I have. It raised a question to me because he, he talks a lot about like... If you cut the electricity in a city, it'll take it'll only take like a couple of days before all 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 the whole city descends into chaos, right? And these sorts of things. So I was wondering, how thin is the veil between civilization and chaos? Like how how thin do very, you think it is? Very thin. And what I guess, uh, obviously, this is all speculative. I'm, I'm asking you to be a bit speculative on this one, but uh, like, what are what are the kind of necessary prerequisites that you think would be needed to uh, be cut or disrupted. What would be the necessary amount or parameters of disruption to really get a lot of chaos, Jack? What do you reckon? Like power is probably a big one, um, but what else? <laughs> Let's have fun. Let's have a bit of fun on this one. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> pour, most, pour acid into the, the most water important supply. <laughs> things would probably be things that would fracture elite unity or ruling class unity. So this is this is actually back to Peter Turchin <laughs> through history. The things that lead to revolutions or huge societal upheaval are things that affect the unity of the ruling group. So through history, it, it really seems to be you can make the general population as miserable as you like, but so long as the ruling group is still quite united, you don't have uprisings or you don't have successful uprisings. So... There would there would need to be things that fracture so ruling give us, groups. Into say science. I'm a little like a little um, aspiring accelerationist using the um, diagnosis of society and societal collapse, historical societal collapses that you've just given Jack. What would be your um, prescription? If like what what are some of the things that you could say? Hey, do Levi go and do these things to disrupt <laughs> the elite's uh, grip on power and stability? What what are some things that I could do? <laughs> I think it really it, it depends on the country a lot. Okay, which country? I guess in Australia. 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 Yeah, do it. I in just Australia. don't know if an individual could do this, but say, given how much, what about a gang? How much of beach ruling goths? group wealth is in is in the property market? Say, mm. tanking house prices <laughs> would make would make things would probably fuck things up pretty bad. Pretty grim. Pretty yeah, quickly. cut negative gearing or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about the property market. Stock market collapse. Something like the collapse of the Australian dollar would just get given... I'm not sure if that would cause, actually, the collapse of Australian society, given that most of the ruling group, it tends to be poorer people who have most of their assets in fiat currency. So I'm not sure if that would do the trick. There are natural things, like if, say, there were a drought, 
that was really prolonged and really bad that started really eating into the food supply. That could do it. And the water, say if the dams ran out of water, that could do it. <laughs> yeah, I think anything else. I think I really, I think if the short, say there were, the shortest... if, if the government ran into such financial difficulties that they couldn't pay the police force or the military, that'd probably do it. <laughs> mm, yes. Yes. I think the shortest answer, the shortest cut, would just be pouring acid in the water supply. Just a nice big dose Yeah, exactly. Acid. Exactly. And just obviously just give everybody a mass bit of a dosing with freak LSD. out and a, mass, a bit of a freak out. And then the day after, when everybody recovers, I reckon people would go fucking apeshit. <laughs> Why did we let these people pour acid in the water supply? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, unless you have any other uh, interesting questions that were stimulated by this book, should we have Not our really. concluding, re- concluding remarks? Yeah, I feel pretty let down by this book. He committed the cardinal sin of boring me. <laughs> we should have like a, a Dante's level of sins for this podcast where the ninth circle exactly. is boring, the, the, the deepest boring. level of hell is, is reserved for those who, who are boring. Yeah, fuck you, Mike Ma. I reckon that's probably also the one thing that we could say about this guy that he would actually care about. <laughs> Like, we could say he's racist, misogynistic, anti-Semitic, whatever, or he's an asshole, he's arrogant. He'd probably just be like, yeah, I am, fuck you. But I reckon saying he's boring, I reckon that would piss him off. I find it it highly unlikely that he would pay any attention to us whatsoever. But (laughs) the fact remains that he's written effectively the same book again. And, yeah, I, I found it pretty dull. The addition of a threadbare plot really wasn't enough to differentiate it from harassment architecture. I agree. I agree. And all of all the fun bits of harassment architecture. So, say, he, he still writes well. And he, he does write some quite funny things. But they're effectively just rehashes of what he'd written previously. If I hadn't read Harassment Architecture, I probably would have enjoyed Gothic Violence much more. However, I have. And so I just, I, I did not enjoy this nearly as much as Harassment Architecture. I am pretty much on the same page as you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was over it pretty quickly. I do hope he keeps writing, but tries to write something new. Because I would read, I would like to read something of his that is more... I'm not going to say conventional because there's there's definitely a place for books that don't yeah. have say plot in a conventional sense or something like yeah. that. But I would like him to write something that is more than really a glorified series of blog posts. Be good for him to explore some other ideas. I feel like his all these ideas around disliking race mixing and the proper place of women and accelerating the. So I feel like he's he's beaten those several horses to death. He can move on now. Yeah. Well, a lot of his form, as we as we were talking about earlier, a lot of authors will have a series of topics that they write about. Human beings tend to have a collection of preoccupations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Authors are no different. I just wish he would package these preoccupations with, say. The oral contraceptive pill and race mixing. So in maybe a more he should try way. like 
either actually writing down what his views are, doing something like actually like nonfiction and saying like, this is a coherent worldview or he should, which might actually be quite interesting. Um, or, and then yeah, he would probably read hide, that. He, he wouldn't be able to then hide behind the get out of jail free card. Like, oh, this is just fiction. <laughs> um, yeah. That'd be good. Uh, or he should actually write like something with an actual narrative. But I guess we'll see. Only time will tell. If he keeps up this cadence, we could expect a book from him in the next couple of years. Yeah. Which would be good. And we'll probably read it. Oh, God. Hopefully. Well, I guess we'll see. Um, yeah. Next book, are we going to... Uh, we're going what are we going to read next? Well, we're talking about maybe Yarvin. Maybe Yarvin. The problem with Yarvin but is... that would take some time. It's, to just, it's just a series of, of blog posts. Interesting ones. I would like to do Yarvin. He's got a substack a... called Grey Mirror or something, and he says eventually he will publish it as a book. So I think we should probably wait until that. Okay. Until he's curated <laughs> the posts that he thinks are most worthwhile, and we can read those. All right. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. This has been your friendly hosts, Jack and Levi, bringing you another wholesome family book and wholesome podcast for you to share with your friends. Just a reminder, we've got a Discord. We now have at least one person sending us messages. We would like more people in Discord. If you join the Discord, you can even help us decide what book we're going to read next. Yeah, that would yeah, be Yeah, book recommendations are highly, highly appreciated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can help us find some weird shit, that would be great. It um, doesn't even have to be a whole book. It, couldn't be, it can be a weird 10-page PDF that you find somewhere on the internet. Yeah, just weird, some strange stuff to get into, uh, especially if it's any topics that we haven't uh, discovered yet uh, in our reading list um, so far. Otherwise, uh, follow us on Twitter. We're trying to get, we're still, we occasionally use Twitter. Uh, Discord's the main thing. Let's, let's just pump the Discord, hey? <laughs> <laughs>